Well, Lord, we come before you now and ask that by your grace, you give us ears to hear all that your spirit is saying to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we can look at chapter 29, we got to go back in time to chapter 27. You guys might remember this. When David was such a mighty man of faith, he saw Saul with his 3,000 mighty men. They were all sleeping in a circle, Saul in the middle, and David as bold as when he went against the Goliath, as bold as he went against the lion and the bear as a boy. He says, I just need one guy. Who is it? Abishai said, I'll go. They march right in. God put them in a supernatural sleep, the whole army. And David just bravely went in, grabbed his spear and his water, and walked out. And you just say, David is an unstoppable man of faith. But a few days later, chapter 27, verse 1 of 1 Samuel says, David said in his heart, now I will perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul will despair of me and seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So I will escape out of his hand. Now, David was walking by faith saying, Saul can't kill me because God prophesied through Samuel I'll be the king. So I've not been the king yet. So I'm not going to die. He had such faith. But all of a sudden, these 14 years of living in caves, running for his life, now with his mighty men and all their wives and children, living out in a very desert place most of the time, we just see him walking by faith, and a few moments later, a few moments later, just melts down. And we can understand that, can't we? Often, the lowest places we land is after some of the highest places we've been, right? Well, in verse 3, David dwelt with the... Akash at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, David and his wives. In verse 5 through 7 of 1 Samuel 27, David said to Akash, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let me give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there for. Why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Up to that point, the king said, David, come on in, you and your mighty men. I want you to live in the capital city, the royalty. You are my personal bodyguards. That's how much Achaz trusted David. And now they've been living in this putrid, idolatrous city. And David says, we got to get out. And in verse 6 there of 1 Samuel 27, And Achaz gave him Ziglag that day. Therefore, Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. I think of this season in David's life, these 16 months, and I think his son Solomon, the wisest man ever, now dissecting the years before, looking at all his father said. If you read the Proverbs, Solomon says over and over again, my dad told me, my father set me down, and he mentioned to me. We think of Solomon as the wisest man of the world, but he says a lot of the Proverbs came straight from dad. One of them is Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, 
but the end is the way of death. You see, David was saying, I, I, I can't keep living with this tension. I know God's going to help me, but I'm not so certain that man won't prevail over God and, and I'm dead when I shouldn't be. So I, I just can't do this anymore. And he does exactly what God said never to do. Go outside the, pro the boundaries of the promised land. God said, I've set up this land and you're to live within the land. That way I can prosper you and bless you. But if you go outside those boundaries, you're on your own. And David said, I'm on my own. I can take the pressure off of me right now by just living in the midst of the Philistines. Saul will leave me alone. Was David right? It did. His way that seemed right to him actually benefited him. The first month, the first year, all the way to the 16th month, things were rosy in the land of the Philistines, the land of Ziglag. But understand, God sometimes lets us prosper in our sin. But ultimately, if we really are his kids, It'll all come crashing down at some point. So David did what was right in his own eyes, and we're going to see the end of that was very, very painful. Well, we now enter to chapter 29, verse 1 through 3. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by the fountain, which is in Jezreel. That's the valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Armageddon. The final battle of all the earth will be in this beautiful, lush valley. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in, the re in review at the rear with Achish. That they were his personal army. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days, more well, these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him, since he defected to me. So Achish has been believing David's lies. David comes back with all this spoil, and, he, and the king says, where did you get it? Oh, I'm attacking Judah. I hate Israel, and I'm wiping out villages and taking everything. In reality, he was going to the Philistines' allies, other countries around the Philistines, and, and completely destroying them, not leaving anybody alive that could contradict David's lie to the king of the Philistines by saying, oh yeah, the, 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 he would never suspect. He would just kill everybody, destroy everything, wipe the ground as if no one had ever existed there. And so the king, he's like, man, it feels like years. It's only been 16 months, but it feels like years that David's been this loyal, loyal man who's in charge of my personal safety, my security guard, my bodyguards. Well, in verse 4 and 5, and the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him and do not let him go down with us into battle, lest the battle he becomes our adversary. For with what could be reconciled himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sang to one another and dances saying, Saul has slain his thousand and David his tens of thousands? 
king. We don't want this. We don't trust this. Uh, how do we know they won't have a change of heart in the middle of the battle and start wiping us out? In verse 6 and 7, And Achash called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Well, David, by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin, has a way out. But notice where David's at. Look at this. In verse 8, David said to Achash, What have you done? <coughs> and to this day, what have you found in your servant, as long as I have been with you, that I may go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achash answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my side as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the prince of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning, your master's servant, to have come with you. And as soon as you are up, <coughs> excuse me, as soon as you're up early in the morning and have light, depart. Excuse me. Um, did we realize how serious this situation is? In a matter of a few days, maybe two days. Saul and Jonathan would be dead and David would be going back to Israel and anointed as king. But imagine if David and his men end up having to go to battle against Israel, brother against brother, father, son, uncle, cousin, can you imagine David with his sword out? And there's Jonathan on the horse a few feet away, his best friend. And there's Saul coming after him. Would he touch the Lord's anointed? No. Imagine as they're just thinking, what is going to happen here? Well, that was it. He, would, he could have been king, but people bitter at him for the entire time he ruled because David fought with the wicked Philistines against him. And those mighty men of David had killed my family. And I know that David's supposed to be king, but I can't think that I'm still just bitter at him for lining up with the Philistines. No matter what Saul did, that didn't give him the right to do that. Imagine that David, who had waited so, so long, decades, for the prophecy to be filled that he would be king, had he fought against Israel, what bitter, sweet moment that crown would have been upon his head, right? I, I guess the other choice they had was... The guys are going, David, I, I, you know what? You've led us all this time. We've, you made some really tough decisions. We backed you up. We submitted to you. You're our leader. But there is no way. And they start fighting against the Philistines. Again, there would have been no honor in that either. But David, instead of just going, okay, king, sorry, sorry, buddy, we're leaving. He he's, he's wants to keep up the charade. What do you mean I can't fight with you? Do you know how long I've been loyal to you? Of course he wasn't. He's lying his head off. It's unreal. What, what did he get from 
thinking the king of the Philistines would still like him. Because in a couple of days, he's going to be the king of Israel. And these Philistines are going to be madder at David than ever. And they're going to come and fight against David right after he gets on the throne. Well, pushing on verse 11. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now, chapter 30, verse 1 and 2. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and the Ziglag and attacked the Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken captives, the women, those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Wow. David returns. He's like, oh, this has been so stressful. I can't wait to get home in the comfort of my family, sleep in my own bed, get my comfort of my children. And they come up over the hill finally to see all is lost, completely burnt down. Just gone three days. But yet those Amalekites, those deviants, those guys that had originally tacked Israel when they came out of Egypt, those guys that Saul was to utterly wipe out and didn't. These Amalekites representing the flesh, they keep growing back like a worm that gets cut in half, but yet getting meaner and stronger each time. And so we see now that Saul not obeying God is causing the next Lord's anointed to be attacked by that flesh. Well, in verse 3 now to verse 6 of 1 Samuel 30. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and said, I am angry that I've never been. Let's go after the enemy. Is that what it says? <laughs> they lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. That, that blows my mind. These hardened soldiers, these guys that had been barbarians, wiping out people after people. Here they are now in this burnt down city and all their efforts over the last 16 months gone in a flash. They just break. They're just that breaking point. Here's what I think. I think they've all never felt quite right leaving the promised land. They understood David's reasonings and they were valid and it worked. They understand that was a answer, wasn't the answer, but we all would like to not keep being on the run. We'd all like to settle down in the city. You don't feel quite right about it. And then David just says, I just want to get stinking wealthy. How about you guys? What do you want? What do you want? And they're wiping out babies and children and taking everything and doing this week after week, going on these raids. I think maybe they weren't sleeping so well. Maybe they woke, woke up screaming in a sweat. Maybe they were having PTSD. But they were at the tipping point already when they get the command to go fight with the Philistines against Israel. And I think every step they took towards the Jezreel Valley, the more weight their conscience against them was having. 
and they're so perplexed. Do I listen to David or do I not fight against Israel? How can we fight against my own people? How can I fight against the country of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You know, and, and they're, it's just crazy stressful. What are we going to do? How are we going to work this out? And then they hear these princes going, guys, get out of here. And they're going, oh, thank goodness. And then they hear David saying, no, we're not going to leave. We deserve to be here as much as all these other Philistines. And they're like, ah, no, this is a roller coaster of emotions. And finally, they're heading back home. The stress, the emotional weight, the anxiety, maybe the guilt been weighing upon them now for these 16 months and and they're, they're 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 trying to push ahead to the next day the next week the next month they're trying to keep up this speed and this lifestyle in this pagan country with these pagan gods but when they come up to that hill and they look down to see the city of Ziglag their hearts condemn them we went out destroying cities, and now God has allowed our city to be destroyed. We've gone after the peoples, not righteously, not by command of God, but just for wealth. And now we are reaping what we've sown, and we deserve it. I would rather be a pauper back in Israel I would rather be abandoned, hiding in a cave with nothing than to have come to this moment in time where I'm getting what I deserve. They begin to weep like a, a bunch of little children. I just think they emotionally broke and they, and they just couldn't keep, they couldn't stop weeping. Was it about the loss of their families and their, all the spoils they had gained over those 16 months? I think it was much deeper. I think they were weeping over just the whole package of, of how they have lived in these last year and a half. And it's, it's finally just broke them to a point of absolute distress. Notice it goes on to say, David's wives were taken. And in verse 6, it says, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his son and his daughters. Final verse of today here, the final sentence. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Prodigal David, <laughs> greatly distressed. Prodigal David had finally hit the bottom. And when he hit the bottom, he was alone. You know, these guys wept. Maybe some of them wept just because they regret that they lost everything that they had worked so hard for. Do we understand that not all weeping and brokenness is tears is repentance? You got the guy in prison who is crying that he got caught. <laughs> and then you got the other guy crying that he did the deed and he shouldn't have done the deed. And he wishes he could go back in time and undo that deed. The fact is, is that if we can repent in a godly sorrow, 
That's the work of God. It's God's Holy Spirit alone who convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When later David would sin with Bathsheba and then murder her husband and a number of other guys died in that story that he's trying to recreate. David finally, after a year of just sorrow and regret, he finally does have a godly sorrow. And what does he say? Against you, you only, God, have I sinned. Now, is that true? <laughs> what about Bathsheba? What about her husband Uriah? What about her parents and grandparents? What about the whole nation of Israel? He is saying, the godly sorrow that I have is I realize more than any man I've offended, and I've offended a bunch. I have insulted the holy God who has this wonderful plan, who would have poured blessings upon blessings, blessings upon my life. But like Adam and Eve, I didn't want to eat of the billions of other trees that I could eat of. I wanted to eat of the one tree I wasn't to eat of. And I have sinned against God. And, and the guilt of my sin towards God is greater than any guilt towards any man, as great as that guilt may be. That's a godly sorrow. We see in Hebrews 12, verse 17, that Esau wanted to repent. It tells us, you know, that afterwards he wanted to inherit the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau, he, he, he regretted that he didn't get the blessings he should have got. He couldn't see it in his youth, but now in his older age, looking back, he's like... I shouldn't have ate that stew. <laughs> I shouldn't have given up my birthright because now I understand what it means. God, I'm sorry. Well, no. He couldn't find repentance even though he sought it, even though tears came and there was a brokenness of heart. There was not a repentance of sinning against God. Do we realize that's a work of God? Our conscience, yes, weighs upon us. Yes, we understand how we've hurt others and we feel bad about it. But if you have a true repentance, a true godly sorrow, where you are saying, God, forgive me, and I'm going to live a life in your will from this point forward, that is a miracle. A matter of fact, in John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. God has to do the work. If you can truly come and say, God, I, I hate my sin. And the thing about my sin I hate the most is that it's spitting in your face. It's trampling underfoot the cross of Christ. It's disrespecting the cross and the love of the Father that sent you to begin with. And, and yes, I want my flesh more than spiritual things. And I can't live this way anymore where I get my meat, but a leanness in my soul. Lord, I repent to you. You only have I sinned. And it's you and your will and your plans and your desires is all that matters. Lord, I'm your servant. That's a miracle, guys. No matter how much a man may wish it to be, only the Father can bring such a repentance 
and bring that person unto Jesus. And so if you have a callous heart, a hard heart, an indifferent heart, a I don't care heart, I do fear for you. Even though there may be a time of tears that you won't find a true godly sorrow, you won't find a repentance. Well, David, it says here, was greatly distressed. In Psalm 119.67, David would later write, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Interesting there that he's in this dark place, this deep place. He, he can't even stand up. He needs a drink of water, but he's jello because they've been weeping so long and they're sort of falling all over each other and snot and, and tears and, and they just, they don't care about anything. They can't get up. And David then hears the men wanting to stone him to death. David has really come to the end of himself. Why? Because God's spanking him. <laughs> and he's spanking all these guys. In Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 6, And you have, for, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. You see, God wasn't punishing David out of anger. He was spanking him out of love. Hebrews 12, 8 says, But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. As bad as the neighbor kids are, you only spank your kids, right? You might go tell their parents and tell them they should spank them. You spanked yours, but you, you don't do that, right? And the fact is, is, if David could go on another four months, another 10 years, if David could keep living in zigzag outside of the boundaries, the blessings of God, all he needs is money and family and friends and, and, and safety and, and good flowing water. And, and, and he never was spanked. That means he's not God's kid because God spanks all his kids. I think of that prodigal son. God left him, but he had this rebellious streak in him until he had to just run out of it until he came and hit the bottom, right? All his money's gone. A famine hits the land. All he can do is make himself a servant. And the guy scorns him and says, ah, no, no, everybody else is going to pick the corn. You little Jew boy, you're going to go feed the pigs. Sounds pretty kosher, doesn't it? And he was so starving to death. He, he, he went over and he started to scoop up to the pigs. And then he realized, as gross as this is, I want to eat this so bad. But there's a guy watching me. If I eat with the feeding the pigs, I might get in trouble. So he had to give it all to the pigs. But he, in his own heart, wished he could eat some of that pig food. And at that moment, he comes to his sanity. At that moment, he comes to himself and he realizes there's hope in God. I know my father. My father will receive me back as horrible as I have been. Isn't that true? We know that. 
matter of fact, we have seen God pull us out of that pig pen not once or twice, right? Maybe hundreds of times. But let me ask you, if God had brought us to our senses in the pig pen 10,000 times, does that mean we need to worry about 10,001? If God has met us in that pig pen 10 million times, are we confident he'll do it 10,000, 10,001? 10 yes. 2 Timothy 2, 13 says, For he, we are faithless. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is the joy, knowing that God spanks his kid. God won't let us continue on in our foolish success. He will bring us to that dark night of the soul. Now, sometimes the dark night of the soul comes, not from anything you've done, like Job. It was just spiritual attack. But what happened? Job lost all strength in his physical disease. Paul, I can always get an encouraging word from my wife. Curse God and die or commit suicide. Okay, I'll rule her out. <laughs> but my best friends are so wise and they, they'll support me. They'll believe in me. We think you're like the worst sinner that's ever lived, Job, and God's making a point of it. No help. That place of the dark night of the soul, it says that that prodigal, that nobody cared for his needs in that foreign country. Well, David was in that dark side of the soul. All earthly encouragements were shut down. Ah, oh, to hear the voice of Samuel. No Samuel. Maybe my good friend Jonathan will come my way. No, Jonathan. Well, I know I can count on these 600 plus mighty men we've been through hell and back, up and down, and, and I know they'll support me no matter what. No encouraging word there. They're thinking of killing you. In Psalms 139.5, it says, You have hedged me in behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. David had no encouragement. It was all stripped away. You say, well, Ziglag is burnt, but at least I still got my family. Oh, I don't have my family. <laughs> well, Ziglag is burned, but I, I still got my wealth. Oh, I, I don't have that either. Well, I still got my best, but I don't have those either. David, what do you have? Absolutely nothing. In Psalm 60, verse 11 and 12, David realizes this. Give us help from trouble, for help of man is useless, or vain is the help of man. Though God do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down my enemies. David was brought to the point where he could not see anything but God. All other avenues were shut out. And it came to that point where when God finally brought him to the bottom, bottom spot where he was hedged in on every side from every way to encourage himself or in others to encourage him. He could only find his encouragement in the Lord. And I think the Lord meant it to be that way. I would like to make a quick note here. David was deeply distressed. He had been tuning God out. Because every time he tried to worship or tune God in, it would be, what are you doing here? Go back to country and western. You know? Okay, I'll tune God in today. What are you doing there? Go back. 
He, he knew that to have a fellowship with God would be to stop what he's doing and go back to the land of Israel. And he didn't want that, so he just shut God out. So for 16 months, he's just ignored God. Riding with his guys, fighting with his guys, going out, being with the family, keep things busy, 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 busy. I don't want to hear God. And he didn't until God put him in a place <laughs> that he had no choice. Aren't you glad that God does that? But I want to make a note. At the same time, matter of fact, only a very few miles away, there was another king who was greatly distressed, who had also not been able to hear from God, who once had a Samuel, but he was gone. He had a son, Jonathan, but he can't talk to him anymore. Out of all the country of Israel, there was none who was spiritual, with spiritual insights. So a few miles away, Saul desperately wanted to hear something supernatural went to a witch. You know, here's the thing about that dark night of the soul. It reveals what's in your soul. <laughs> Either you're going to be in this time of distress and say, cursing God for not helping you, not answering your prayers, making life so painful, and uh, or what's going to come out of your soul is like David. Just God, I'm at the bottom here. Father, I know you received me no matter what I've done and get up from that place. So David strengthened himself in the Lord. How do we do that? Number one, get your eyes on the Lord in the midst of your distress, depression, feeling hopeless, etc., and be strong in the grace. Get your eyes on the Lord. And what? See God on his throne of grace, ready to give out that grace and mercy, all that we need in our time of need. David says in Psalms 42, 11, Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within yourself? Then what does he answer to himself? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. What did David learn in this time? I was in that place. Everybody was distressed and upset and angry. And, and, and I was, there was no, nothing, nowhere. There was nothing to take joy in, no kids, no wealth. And, and I, as I got to that place, I just said, I got to put my eyes on the Lord. And what did I see? The father running to me with open arms. And I said, I'm not worthy to ever be a king now. I'm not whether, worthy to be a child of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. I'm not worthy to live back into the promised land. And the father said, here's your robe. Here's your sandals. Here's your crown, David. David learned that. In Psalms 139, probably speaking of many dark nights of the soul, in verse 5 through 12, he says, You have hedged me in behind, and before you laid on your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell... Not, a, not recommended. Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness as the light are both alike to you. David had been in that place. And when he was in that place, incredible distress, no one to help him, he knew that God was with him. All he had to do is tune in. All he had to do is get his eyes off the world and his flesh and his wealth and his family, get his eyes on the Lord. And there was the Lord, not with the big stick to strike him, but the hands out full of grace and mercy. Spurgeon said it this way in a quote, we were faint, we were distressed, but God made us more than conquerors through the great love he has for us. I, I hate to say this, guys, but we need those times of failure, right? If, if God forgiving me was only hypothetical in case I ever needed it, <laughs> would, I, would I ever know it? The fact is, is God knows ahead of time and he's already paid for that sin and he's already seen that we'll turn to him in that distress. Remember Peter, that night in which the Lord was going to be betrayed and, and Peter says, man, nobody's going to be like me. I got a sword. I'm going to defend you. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, you're going to deny me three times. Well, I haven't done that. You're not, it hasn't happened yet. It's in the future. Peter, I see your future fellings. And it's going to be bad. And you're going you're gonna to have a heavy heart about that. But after that felling, it hasn't happened yet, still in the future, my blood is going to be shed for it. You're going to be forgiven of it. But because of the depth of denying me three times at the time you wanted to be for me so much, you're going to have an insight into grace that you've never had. And when after that failing, I want you to get up and I want you to go forth in your entire ministry, strengthening the hearts of all your brothers in the mercy and the love and the grace of God. You see, this is where faith gets us up and moves us forward. We don't sit around and go, man, I reaped what I sown. My poor wife was raped. My kids were traumatized. And, 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 and it was just, oh, man. So to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Boy, I'll tell you guys, regret, regret, regret. No, there's just a point that goes, God, you know, you know all my successes, you know all my failures, and I don't want to fail because I know it's painful to reap what I sow. I know there's great honor and a crown for those who fight temptation and win. I intend to, but yet we come to that place to say, where sin abounds, grace abounds more for a reason, to cause us to be even greater lovers of God and his grace and his mercy, greater proclaimers of the work of God. Well, the second thing, when you're in that place, you got to walk by faith and trust in God's nature, right? Not by sight, walk by faith, not by sight. It says in 1 John 5, 4, 1 John 5, 4. Can you find it there? How are you doing? Skip on down. 
I had to skip a lot of verses because we have the Super Bowl today. We got to hurry. <laughs> okay, First John 5, 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. David would tell his son Solomon, and Solomon would tell us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Even if going to live in the Philistine land seems like a really good idea at the time. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Wise, isn't it? As much as there's the immediate relief taking it in your own hands, lean on your own understanding, working it out in your own methods. And maybe that relief will last for 16 months. Eventually, your way is not sustainable. And if it doesn't have God's blessings, you're going to suffer greatly. But David could do this. How does he strengthen himself? By faith and trust in God. God, I'm going to remember back. I was a little boy. I felt the power of your spirit killing the lion and the bear. I didn't sense that I would be this little boy of great faith, but yet now in my late 30s, be somebody that you want to cast off forever. I didn't sense that. I sense you started working with me until the day that I'm in your presence. And I went down against Goliath. I had such a faith that wasn't from me. I know it was from you. And I went against that thing, and I sensed that the victory I had would be a victory that I would keep until the day I die. And then I was so tempted to solve my tension problems by killing Saul. Not once, but twice. You gave me that opportunity, and, and boy, it would have took the pressure off. But I didn't lean on my own understanding. I acknowledge you. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. David could ask the questions. God, did you not send Saul to anoint me? And tell me, I thought I'd never thought that one day this little boy, shepherd boy from Bethlehem would be king. Why would you speak that and leave me here in distress in a burnt down zigzag? God, did you not call me to be king? I've not been king of anything. Why would you speak that word unless you were going to fulfill it? God, did you not raise me up right after I was married to Saul's daughter, Michael, and he put me in this little post as one of his soldiers. And quickly, I was raised up not just to be a general, but the leading general. You get giving me these great wisdom and authority. God, did you not prophesy all of this? Will you not fulfill it? Paul told Timothy to hang on to those prophecies that were given to him when in his youth, that he could now fight the good Warfare, keeping faith and a good conscience. You know, here, here's our problem, guys, is, is that we don't get our eyes on God. Isaiah 40, verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can we get this? That it's God we're asking mercy from. Not the most merciful guy that we know. God's a little more merciful than that. God says he'll give us a love that passes all comprehension to flow through our lives. Our mind, our mind can't get it. It'll, it'll, it'll just burn out if you try to use your brain. But God supernaturally. But understand, God has a love that we haven't even scratched the surface. God's not a little more forgiving than the most forgiving moment you've ever had. God's mercies are high as the heavens above the earth. God's patience and love and kindness and goodness. We're coming to God who is not like man that we should compare him. Here, here it is. The greatest sin a person can ever commit is not believing God is able once again to forgive you once again to be able to pull you up and give you grace again to follow him. Do you, do you realize how offensive that is to the Lord? If we say, God, we know you are God of love, a love that we know not understand, but I have been so sinful, so foolish. I've tipped the scale that you didn't even know you had God and your love isn't enough to reach me this time. Was it not God upon the cross? Did he not come into human flesh and blood through his veins to forgive all sin? Well, almost all of them. There was four or five of mine I, I committed in my old age, and that's why I'm going to hell. I'm done with. Is God's cross all-powerful? Is his blood more powerful than the wickedest man that's ever lived? Is Jesus' resurrection limited? But it's not comparable enough. It's not powerful enough for somebody as sinful as you. Can such equation exist? Of course it can't. God's all powerful. It's, he says that the cross, on, I'm paying for all sins. Hitler's. <laughs> Every wicked person's sin. God's died for them. If people are, can come by faith and, and have that gift of the Father to be drawn into Jesus with a broken heart, there is nothing greater than the cross of Christ. There is nothing more powerful in the universe or ever will exist in the universe than the resurrection of Christ. And this is why we need to build up our faith through the word of God and how we need to come in faith in those times is sometimes purely faith. We don't feel it. We don't, we don't feel this move of getting back right with God. Sometimes that scares me. I realize that I can sear my own heart. I realize that I can quench the Holy Spirit until I don't sense the Spirit like I know I used to and should. I used to be able to hear that small, still voice getting me up in prayer, giving me a hunger for the word, giving me that little push I needed to get to church and, and to live for God. But yet I'm in a scary place right now and I have no emotions to help me 
get to where I need to be. Well, this is where we have to walk by faith and not by human feelings, only upon God and what we know of his nature and his word. So by faith, we come boldly to that throne of grace. Thirdly, we need to know that God is our shepherd and he's got us. Do, do we understand that? In John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And what? The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. In John 6, 39, this is the will of the father who sent me that all he has given to me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up on the last day. John 10, 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither, neither, shall, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And I and my father are one. Do we get this? Jesus says, once you're in my hand, I take the responsibility. He says it more plainly in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify. What? He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. How, how can we make it through this sinful world in which our flesh is going to continue to struggle? The righteous man falls seven times. It doesn't say the righteous man would never fall seven times. And we know Jesus said we're to forgive one another 70 times seven. So how is David sitting there in distress and he's, he has no emotions to repent. He has no strength to, to want to obey or do anything except lay there in his exhaustion, emotional, physical sorrow. How does the Lord look at this? You're my sh sheep. <laughs> I went back and I counted up and, and there was 99, but where's David? Oh, he ran off. <laughs> what does a shepherd do? Does he not leave the 99 and go after that one sheep? There the shepherd brought David to a place that was inevitable for his children who were rebellious to come. And that is to a dark place to get their eyes back on the Lord, to understand we cannot live without his grace, his mercy, his love. In him alone can we live and move and have our being. The fourth thing, don't worry, pray. Jesus made it clear we can't worry our way into anything, not even changing the color of our hair making us grow an extra inch. What does he say instead in Philippians 4, 6? Be anxious, worry for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Trust him, have faith in that. Finally, the fifth thing, 
is God is our Savior. And that is from A to Z. So if you're here today and you say, that's me. God's hedged me in behind. His heavy hand is upon me. I'm getting spanked and I'm screaming about it. Well, it's because God loves you. What do we do? And 1 John 1, 9 says we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In 1 John 3, 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Right? Peter, by the way, I, I don't know just about your past and present sins. Tomorrow, you're going to deny me, not once, not twice, three times. How, how do you know such detail about my future failings? Because I'm having to take all those sins on me today. <laughs> and I already know about the sins of tomorrow because I'm a powerful God who sees the past, present, and future the very first sin of Adam and Eve to the last sin ever committed, probably by me, and, and all of them upon himself. And I'm telling you that after you have fallen, little kids, don't fall, right? Here's some roller skates. Don't fall. If your kid's out there roller skating going, I can't fall, I can't fall. If I fall, oh man, my, my mom will hate my guts. If I fall, I fall, I fall. That's, that's no fun, is it? Don't fall because you're skinning your knee, but if you do, I got a Band-Aid. I, I, have, I have a way to fix it. I, I hope you don't forsake the Lord for 16 months. You'll regret it. David, the one thing above all things he ever wanted to do was build the temple. That was the only thing that mattered to him. And he came to the point going, God, I've got the wealth, I've got the safety. And God says, sorry, David, remember those 16 months you were a barbarian in the Philistine land? You're a man of bloodshed. You are unworthy to even lay one single brick in that building. Oh, reap what you sow. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at a time when you really want to fulfill a desire of your heart, it's going to come back going, little children don't sin because you're going to reap what you sow. But at the same time, we can't stand there and say, oh, I'm paralyzed because I know someday I'm going to reap what I sow. We got to get up. Come to the throne of mercy and just say, God, I confess my sin. I know your faith and righteous. Forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Whew, thank you for this. Now, what about tomorrow? Don't sin. <laughs> but if you do sin, God knows about that one, too. And he's taking care of it. But my heart condemns me. That's what happens when you sin. Yeah, we, you do feel condemned. Satan is condemning you. Others might be condemning you. But you need to walk by faith. God's greater than your heart. And he knows all things. Well, Lord, we come before you now. And 
And we know, Lord Jesus, that we are going to all be in this place maybe many times in our life, either like Job through Satan's devices or maybe like the prodigal and David through our own sense of strength, our own sense of money, our own sense of power, our own sense of independence. And we quit leaning on you and start leaning on our own understanding. And we begin to suffer the consequences of family, of wealth, of friends, of enemies destroying us. And we're not under that covering. And we come and see that all is ash. And we realize that you've brought us to this place once again as a good father spanks his killed children. Lord, we just don't want to continue to repeat this. We come before you now and ask God that you would search our heart. See if we're in that place. And if you're in that place today, you're saying, man, this sermon is exactly where I'm at. Right now, just cry out in faith. God, forgive me. As soon as you turn towards the Father, you're going to see him running right at you with arms of grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. Lord, we come by faith. Let us leave here not as we came in. Let not our hearts be troubled that we have faith. We have a great Savior and an all-powerful Lord in human flesh with an all-powerful resurrection after pain for all our sins. There's nothing hard for you. There's nothing unknown to you. There's nothing that you haven't already seen and paid for our deepest of failures. Lord, cleanse us now. We walk by faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.